always begin with someone who thinks they should be in charge. They should have more. What does that lead to? It always leads to war. What does war lead to? War always leads to famine. Because now you killed all the farmers. You've destroyed the land. There's food insecurity. We didn't have time to plant crops this year. We're too busy defending ourselves. And what does famine lead to? It leads to death. Throughout history, by the way, and I'm not going to just try and map Revelation on the current events, but let's be honest. Are we not living in a time where we had just in the last year someone decide to conquer? And it's led to a war? And just this week, everyone's talking about how there's going to be food insecurity in Europe because the Ukraine turned out to be Europe's breadbasket. We're seeing this unfold right before our eyes. doesn't mean Putin is the rider on the white horse. What it means is this is always happening in every generation. This is what you expect to happen. Anytime there's a conqueror, there's war. Anytime there's war, there's famine. Anytime there's war and famine, what's going to follow? Death. And then we come to this fifth seal, and the fifth seal isn't judgment. The fifth seal is this, and I'm going to read this here, beginning at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was giving a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. The fifth seal has always surprised me in Revelation. The first four I understand because you can see that happening in every century. But we come to the fifth seal And it's not judgment. It's simply the people who have died for God asking God how long they have to wait. Wait for what? Wait until we're vindicated. We gave our lives for the truth that you were on the throne. We gave our lives in belief that everything revolved around you, that you were the center, that Jesus was the key. We gave our lives for this. And yet, guess what? The world is going on. How many of you know sometimes good people die and bad people get rewarded? There are dictators who have died comfortable in their own beds. The world goes on. How long until we have to wait? And God gives an answer that I don't like. And his answer is this, not until everyone else who's also going to be a martyr has died. Not until that number is complete. Now here's what's interesting to me. There's another place that also asks the question how long. It's 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that we're going to have in the last day scoffers who say, why are we waiting so long for his coming? How many are surprised? The New Testament said people are saying it's been too long. Why are we waiting so long for his coming? And Peter's answer is this. God's not slow as people count slowness. Rather, he's patient wanting none to perish, but all to come to repentance. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, what's God waiting on? He's waiting on the full number to come to him. Revelation chapter 6, what's God waiting on? He's waiting on the full number to come to him. God's waiting for that time. 
It's a word to a church that was asking in the first century, how long until you vindicate us? Until you show the rest of the world that we were right, that our worship was right, that it is God who's on the throne. And the answer is, wait, wait. Then we get to the sixth seal, and guess what? The whole world falls apart. There's an earthquake. There's immediate destruction. He says, all the people of the world begin to cry out, and they begin to say, fall on us, O mountain, so that we don't have to face God. And right away, I want to highlight a few things just from this passage. Number one, war, famine, and death are not going to be the end of history. We're told that we have these four horsemen, but after that, we're still told to wait. Just because you live in a time where there's war, just because you live in a time where there's famine, just because you live in a time where there's death, doesn't mean that's the end. Jesus tells us what in Matthew 24? You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars, but that's only the beginning of birth pains. It's not yet. You have to wait. But the judgment is coming. There will be judgment for the world, and there will be justice for God's saints. And the whole point of these seals is to highlight this. The world is not our security. God is our security. The world is not our security. In fact, I'm going to highlight three things. I'm going to have you say this for me once, and we're going to go back again. Say to me, God is the center. Say to me, Jesus is the key. And this world is not our security. God is the center. Jesus is the key. And this world is not our security. That's what you should be walking away from by reading this. It's God who's in charge. It's Jesus who's opening the history. But this world is not a safe place for us. It will not be a safe place for Christians, but it's also not a safe place for sinners because God is going to bring justice. This world is no security. We come now to the next chapter, chapter 7, and everything stops. I mean, we just saw the sixth seal, and it was destruction. It looks like this is the end, and immediately the author says, the angels say, hold on, hold on, hold on, wait. Don't touch the trees. Don't touch the sea. Don't touch the land, because we haven't yet sealed the people that belong to God. Sealing in the ancient world was a way of saying that something belonged to you. The seals that we saw around the scrolls, they would have had wax on them, and then some would have taken a ring that identified who they are. They would have put it on the wax so the person receiving the letter would know the only person in the world who owns this ring is that guy. This letter has to come from that guy. The seal shows who it belongs to. And we're told that before God is going to allow this destruction, before God brings the end, before God answers the question, how long? God's going to first seal all of the people who belong to him. They're going to belong to him. Now, the way I like to sometimes illustrate this is it's the idea of sanctification. Sanctification in the Bible simply means setting something apart. 
and, and whenever God sets something apart, it means that belongs to him and to nothing else. He sanctifies a temple. That temple is set apart. He sanctifies priests. That priests are set apart. He sanctifies the church. The church is set apart. And the way I like to illustrate this is I'll say this to college students. How many of you share a refrigerator with somebody else? And invariably, they all raise their hand because they live in dorm rooms. And I say, how many of you have ever had food that you put in that refrigerator that you didn't want anyone else to eat? And they all raised their hands. So what did you do to the food? What would you do, guys? You put your name on it. When you put your name on the food, what you just did was you sanctified that food. Because you identified it. I once saw someone say, there's this weird thing going on in my office. People are starting to name their food. Today I had a tuna fish named Kevin. You know, it's like this strange. No, you put your name on it. You identify the food. This is for my use. It's not for your use. When God seals us, he's putting his name on us, and he's saying, this belongs to me. It doesn't belong to Satan. It doesn't belong to the world. This is mine. And John says, I had this vision in which I heard that God was sealing a community a community of 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. Now, this is what he hears, because it represents the fullness of the people of God. 12, 1,000, 12 is every tribe, 1,000 is every number. 12,000 times 12,000, 144,000, right? But it's what he hears. I remember that Jesus, Paul, John had just heard that the lion of Judah was worthy to open the scroll. That's what he heard, but what did he see? He saw a lamb that looked like it was slain. In this chapter, he hears that there's going to be 144,000 who are going to be sealed. But what does he see? Here's what he sees. After this I looked, verse 9, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tribe, nation, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hand. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then verse 14, And I answered, Sir, you know, he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. We have this incredible picture here of 144,000 who are being sealed. But then what happens he looks to see who he's talking about, and what he sees is a multitude I couldn't even count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue. That is a vision of the people of God. God promises us that this world is not our security, but who is our security? It's God. It's the Lamb who's going to be their shepherd. They will never hunger again. They will never thirst again. He will give them springs of living water. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Just Friday, 
my wife and I lost a very dear friend unexpectedly. In fact, my wife had celebrated her birthday just the day before. And the next day, her husband goes to give her a piece of birthday cake, says, I'm going to step outside for a minute. I've got to clean up the yard. He's gone 15 minutes. He walks back in, and she's on the floor. They call the paramedics, and they can't revive her. She's just gone. Tragic. We went to see him the very next day. He's a man whose eyes are filled with tears. And he says this to me. He says, I just thought we would go up in the rapture together. I wasn't expecting this. You know what he's saying? How long? How long? Revelation hits this right on the head. This is the question that we're asking. These are the lives we're actually leading. But the promise is still this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. This world is not our security. This world is something that will promise us things. This world will promise us help. This world will promise us support. This world will promise that if we just say what the world wants us to say, we can join their parade. But this world will never be our security. This world cannot wipe every tear from our eyes. It's God who will do that. And that includes every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue. I'm going to say this just very quickly because I, I think it's important to mention. As Christians, we need to remember that our tribe is every tribe. Our tribe is every tribe. As a pastor, I faced this. I once pastored a church in L.A. that had been a white suburban church that over time the demographics of the city changed. And I'm going to tell you, when the demographics of your city change, the demographics of your church should change. Because God calls us to be a church where we are. And I remember that we started to become a community that, that was increasing in other groups. And one day I had a member of my church come to me and she was in tears. And she said to me, I was just standing in the church talking to another member. They're both longtime members. And she said, and he looked at me and he said, you know, the problem with this church now is there's just too many Mexicans. Without realizing she's Hispanic. Because our church was changing. By the way, I was preaching that next Sunday, and suddenly I had my topic. <laughs> we are every tribe. Never get uncomfortable because there are people who are coming to your community who don't look like their tribe. If they're human beings, they're your tribe. They're your tribe. Every language, every people, every nation, every tongue. That's the promise. That's the hope. You know how embarrassing it's going to be in heaven if we're around the throne of God and we're worshiping with people that we kicked out of our church? Because I'm telling you, that is going to be awkward worship. Whoever God brings to us belongs to our tribe. Whoever God brings to us belongs to our tribe. Last passage here. We move on now to the seventh seal. And the seventh seal opens... The seven trumpets. And by the way, this is a really interesting thing in Revelation. Have you ever seen a Russian doll? 
where you open up a doll and what's inside? Another doll. You open that doll up, what's inside? Another doll. That's how revelation works. You have seven seals, but when you get to the seventh seal, what happens? Seven trumpets. Then you hear the seven trumpets. What happens at the seventh trumpet? You get seven bowls. It's like one doll opens another doll, opens another doll. What happens here is their judgments coming to the world, vindication for the church, but they're getting intensified. So the seals are what's already happening now in a sense. We already have war. We already have famine. We already have death. We already have would-be conquerors. But we come to the trumpets. Now it's more intense. Now in the trumpets, we have what? We have in the first trumpet, hail that burns a third of the earth. The second trumpet is mountains that burn a third of the sea. The third trumpet, a third of the drinkable water gets poisoned. The fourth trumpet, a third of the sky turns dark. The fifth trumpet... Demonic spirits like locusts are allowed to torment people without relief who aren't sealed by God. The sixth trumpet, now a humanity, an army comes in and kills a third of humanity. But then we get this verse, and this is going to be the last thing I want to read. Verse 20, after the sixth trumpet, it says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. One thing I want to highlight about this, and we're going to close. God sends judgment. That judgment includes demonic spirits who torment people. And yet we're told in this passage, people still did not repent and continued to worship who? Worship demons. Do you realize that we live in a world where people continue to worship what's killing them? People live for things that bring judgment. Many times because it's just a natural consequence of that thing. If you smoke, can't, if you smoke all your life, it's not strange that you get cancer, Right? It's just a natural consequence. I've, as a pastor, had people dealing with cancer, lifelong smokers. They say, Pastor, why is God doing this to me? And I'm having to use all my pastoral skills to explain it to them. Right? This is a natural consequence. We have a picture here of a world that is being tormented by the very thing they choose to worship. And yet they keep worshiping it. That's a picture of human hearts. But the other thing I want to highlight, and this is my last point, is that it says, neither did they repent, which means repentance was always a possibility. Repentance was always a possibility. God's judgment isn't final until we refuse repentance. This beautiful picture we have here of God is that God does judge. God does vindicate the church, but God's judgment's not final until it's final. And even when we're being judged, God is using that judgment as an opportunity for repentance. Even in Revelation, even after trumpet number six, there's still the opportunity to repent. My dad, years ago, was a young pastor who was called to visit a, a young man in town who was a pastor's kid. 
And someone said, this man has just moved to your town, pastor. He's a pastor's kid. Uh, he has just moved here, but I don't know if he's serving the Lord. Would you go visit him with? My dad said, absolutely. So he and my mom went to visit this man the next day. They come up, knock on his door. The man opens his door, and my dad says to him, sir, you know, I'm pastor so-and-so of this church. I've been asked to come by and just, you know, introduce myself to you. And the man says, hold it right there, preacher. And he invites my dad in. He says, I want to show you something. He said, do you see that car in my driveway? That is the nicest car I've ever owned. Do you see this picture of my family? I have a beautiful wife. I have two daughters that are perfect. Do you know about the job I just received by coming here? He said, Pastor, right now my life is exactly how I want it to be, and I don't have time for God. I already have my security. My dad said, well, I understand. It's nice to meet you. Excused himself. A few months later, that same person who had called my dad earlier called him again. And he said, Pastor, did you ever go visit so-and-so? My dad said, I, I did, but he just wasn't interested. He said, well, he might be interested now. He's had a diagnosis of cancer, brain cancer. They've done surgery on him, but they're not sure if he's going to make it. Would you go visit him again? This time, my dad doesn't go to a house. He goes to a hospital. The man is lying there after surgery, hooked up in a coma. My dad just goes in, prays a little few words over him, excuses himself. Two weeks later, this man calls my dad, and he says to him, Pastor, he says, I heard that you came to visit me. And my dad said, hey, it's so great to hear you. How are you doing? He said, Pastor, it was the strangest thing. He said, I heard you came and prayed for me. He said, I woke up the next day, and I woke up praying the Lord's Prayer. I forgot I even knew the Lord's Prayer. And he said, I, I want you to know that I've, I've come back to God, and could I, could I come to your church when I'm well enough? I'd like to tell the church about it. My dad said, sure. The next time the man was well enough, he came to the church. He stood up and he said, folks, I have a testimony. He said, months ago, your pastor came to visit me. And I told your pastor about all the things I had in this life just as I wanted. And I let him know I didn't have time for God. But God still had time for me. God still had time for me. In the book of Revelation, God still has time for the world. God still has time for the world. And if he has time for the world, guess what? We should have time for the world. We belong to every tribe. The whole world is open to Jesus. So I want you to say this with me again. God is the center. Jesus is the key. The world is not our security. And the church is for everybody. With that, I'm going to invite our worship team forward. We're going to close again in an act of worship. But I just want to pray for you. And here's what I want to pray. There may be some of you in here who just recognize, as I've been talking, that you're not sure that God is your security. You're not sure that the way you're living your life, that if you lost anything in your life other than God, that it wouldn't completely destroy everything about you. If that's the case, I want to pray for you right now. And I just want to pray that you would make God your security and not anything else. There's nothing you have that if it's taken away should destroy you because Jesus is enough. I want God to be that security for you. 
and I want you to be open for everyone else. Sometimes I think there is a key here. When we find our security in something other than God, we find it easier to reject people for God. Be open to others. Make God the center. Lord, I just pray for this community. God, I pray that in every way we would put you first in our lives, that we would live in reality, in the reality of a God who's on the throne, in the reality of a Jesus who was slain for us and is worthy to open the scroll, in a reality of a world that lies and can't give us what it promises, but in a reality of a church that is open for everybody with the promise that God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Lord, we thank you.